Now I invite your attention to Revelation. If I may have your attention just a little bit longer, we've been in the book of Revelation the last three consecutive, or the last two other consecutive uh, uh, opportunities I've had. And so I invite you one more time to the fourth chapter of Revelation. The fourth, this is the last book of the Bible. I was listening to a radio program this week and I heard the very popular host say that if you really want to know about heaven, there's a couple books I want to refer you to. And immediately I was kind of disappointed, but he said one's out of print and then he went on to name the second. Well, I wanted to, if I could, reach out and share with him, there is a book in the Bible that speaks about heaven. It's a glorious book. It's the book of Revelation. That word, the apocalypse, is a word that denotes an unveiling, an uncovering, a revealing. Now, I know that many people write books about having been to heaven and have come back and reveal what they have seen. But the truth is, the book of Revelation conveys visions, it's a picture book, of what heaven truly is. Now, it is conveying things about heaven that we in our mortal state uh, could possibly gather or entertain in our finite minds. I'm sure we'd have to deduce like the Apostle Paul himself, having seen the very paradise of God, would say, it is unlawful for me to speak of the things which he has or which I have seen. And so, John is going to write the things which he had a vision of. John's going to write things that he understood. Now, some of the things that we need to be careful about when we read this great book, this picture book, um, is I think we need to be careful about being dogmatic about assertions that the scriptures herein contain, use the words as or like. Because John is conveying something uh, in language that we might understand like this or like that as we would use a metaphor, for instance. We're comparing something, some symbol, with some reality. The important point about the book of Revelation that we must understand is that the symbolism reflects reality. It's not a comic book, like some people may refer to it as. There are harsh realities that are conveyed in this. And they're truthful. But... Interesting enough, as important as they are, silence from pulpits all across America may surmise the average preaching from the book of Revelation. You take, for instance, the 20th chapter, where it speaks of a great white throne. This speaks of the final judgment. And yes, it's a picture in your mind of a great white throne. But the harsh reality is very steep in that book. Judgment in the book of Revelation is profound. It recurs over and over again. Now, you can't understand judgment and the wrath of God apart from the judgment that took place at Calvary. If you understand and visualize the amount, I don't know what word you could use, of the wrath of God displayed upon His own Son, then you will understand more fully the wrath of God displayed upon sin at the final judgment. But we're not there this morning in the final judgment. We're at another scene in heaven. 
a glorious scene. Now, as I've mentioned before in our previous studies, the book of Revelation is really uh, a variety of, if you will, cycles that reflect the same event, although told in different manners and different ways. That's why the judgment of God in the 20th chapter upon sin is also reflected in other portions of the book of Revelation. All picturing from God's viewpoint the same identical event, whatever it may be. Now, the primary emphasis, I believe, that we shall talk about, especially from the fourth chapter, is mentioned in the first chapter and among the second and third chapter and throughout, and that is that Christ rules and reigns. He is sitting upon his throne, although... Um, as the secret is, we like to keep secrets, Brother Michael. Um, God is pleased to conceal the truth, to hide it from the wise and the prudent, and reveal it unto babes. Has the truth of God been revealed in your hearts? Now, the Bible is a book of revelation, if you will. The Bible reveals the great mysteries of God. And shame on us if we don't read it, if we don't meditate upon it. If we don't delight ourselves in it, shame on us for being people of the book. We need to be daily starting out with the words of God. How important, as we reflected on our daily bread this morning, uh, how wonderful it is to think about the words of God. And yet, ironically, with all the blessings and the promises of God, we hide ourselves from them. We, in a sense... We act like the wise and the prudent, and we don't have nothing revealed to us because we don't pick up the book and relish it and read it and enjoy it. It's meant to be digested. We're to be like trees planted by rivers of living water. We're to soak up like a sponge the Word of God and absorb it in our hearts and in our minds. But Christ rules. In the second and third chapter, He rules among His people, the churches, and that's why this book is really, truly uh, presented to the churches of Christ. The seven churches of Asia, we had mentioned, are a reflection of the churches at that particular period of time and also throughout history. Uh, seven is a complete number. We know that all the churches of Asia weren't listed there. We know uh, several churches that were in Asia at that time in which John lived that were not listed so the seven churches of Asia in the second and third chapter reveal that Christ to the churches is reigning amid, amid His people, that He's in control sovereignly, although it's very difficult to perceive that, very difficult. And so the book of Revelation has got a lot of words that reflect, I think, in some sense, of what C.S. Lewis said. He said, basically, by and large, in light of the book of Revelation, there are two kinds of people. Those who say, thy will be done. And those to whom God says, okay, you want it your way, have it your way. Those two kind of people in such simplistic language by C.S. Lewis conveys much of what we read about in the book of Revelation. John is a messenger who has been uh, 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 born from above by the one that liveth and abideth forever. And his message is written to us today. In the book of Revelation, we hear words like, seal not, seal not the prophecy of the words of this book. Write down what I'm telling you, John, and reveal it to those. Let him, 
who hath ears to hear, right? The churches, let him come, let him hear. And uh, we are reminded of that. Back in the book of Daniel, from which those words reflect, Daniel was told after seeing great visions to seal up, to close, because for the time uh, has not yet arrived. But in the book of Revelation, the time is come. And the book, ever since the beginning of the church age, is now open. It's not sealed. And it's for us. There's obviously a lot of reasons for that. The Old Testament wasn't completely canonized, if you will, even when Daniel wrote it. So a lot of the words of the wisdom and the prophecies back then were not gathered together. But today, we can say that the collection of words are before us. And so let's not seal them up. Let's, like John was told, to eat them. Let them fall into our very bosom and into our gut. Let us nourish ourselves upon the bread of life, the Lord himself. In Revelation chapter 4, we read immediately when verse uh, 1 says, After this I looked, and behold, a door was opened in heaven. A door. This is a door of revelation. A door of opening. A door of God's truth being revealed. Now we read about other doors in the previous chapter. A door that was closed at Laodicean church. A door wherein the Lord knocked. And he petitioned, if any man would open, he would come in and sup with him. And that was a door that we see that was in the church. And it was up to the church in their obedient fashion to open the door to Christ and to sup with him. How do we open a door to Christ and sup with him? We believe what he says. We trust the word that he has given. And so we find that these open doors uh, are throughout the scriptures. There was a previous door. At a particular church, a door of deliverance. So whatever door there may be, it signifies different things. In this particular case, it's a door in which a vision is now about to be given to John. He said, I heard first a voice. And this voice, of course, was, as it were, a trumpet. And so again, it's very symbolic language. And this trumpet is is a reflection of what was said earlier in the first chapter, when John, of course, was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. And in verse 10, he says, He heard behind me a great voice. Whose voice is this? He said, as of a trumpet. And immediately he heard saying, I am Alpha and Omega, the first and the last. What thou seest write, and behold, what thou seest write in a book, and send it unto the seven churches of Asia. And so the Lord Jesus Christ, in his resurrected glory, is now revealing himself to John in all his splendor. And John sees a vision of God in the face of the Lord Jesus Christ. And through that voice, he hears him say. And immediately John said in verse 2 of chapter 4, I was in the Spirit, and behold, he sees a throne in heaven. Isn't that a beautiful picture? A throne of he- in heaven. Now, I often reflect upon just how God manifested his word to John on an island in Patmos. I know we think so differently than God does. God is high, as high as the heavens, and we are beneath. We're low. We think 
He thinks high, we think low. He thinks this way, we think another way. If God reveals something like this, we might think and imagine it should be broadcasted. But yet, it was given to John on the island of Patmos. He was exiled. He said of himself, I am your brother in tribulation. He was, he was uh, alienated, if you will, from his family, from his friends. There's no evidence in the scriptures as to who was with him. Some might traditionally refer to Prochorus, who was one of the deacons in Acts chapter 6, who was ordained. And they have this conjecture that he was not only there with John, but wrote what John saw. But there's nothing in the Bible that gives that proof. Or people love the book. And that's just a good example of how with uh, conjecture, regardless of where it may uh, be derived from, that particular element of um, conjecture was, was found in, the, in like the 11th century among certain churches. But they make, they, you know, people are given to fascination and imagination uh, when it comes to religion. And, you know, they capture certain things. And next thing you know, if you say it enough, it eventually becomes the law or truth. And the important thing for all of us to remember, especially in here in this book, is to relate to what it says from the scriptures and not from conjecture, not from uh, non-inspired historical writings. We follow we are people of the book. And so that reminds me of when we do look at the book of Revelation and we see a variety of images that we use the book itself to define those images. Or we use other books in the Bible that it reflects. Now, Re- Revelation reflects much of what is said in Isaiah. And as I've said before, uh, sometimes we're, we have a fear with Revelation because we don't really know the Old Testament, but... Ezekiel, Isaiah, Zechariah, Daniel are books in the Bible in the Old Testament that reflect a lot of the imagery that we read about right here in the book of Revelation. And there's, there's no reason that they just grasp at straws. A lot of people honestly get a lot of what they understand with the book of Revelation is from the Schofield Bible notes, believe it or not, which is a book that's highly dispensationalist. And, uh, you know... That's one of the most confusing things in the world is talk about you know, various categories of doctrinal belief that man has ascribed the book of Revelation to. That's the worst thing you can do for me to get up here and talk about the three different views by man on the book of Revelation. You'll be more confused than the old termite and the yo-yo, as Sonny Pauls would say. The best thing to do is to look at the Bible, see how the Bible defines itself. It's its own dictionary. And read in it in light of what the Bible says in the past. Like this. He says there's a throne that was set in heaven. And one sat on that throne. And of course immediately we think about maybe, maybe Isaiah. Isaiah when he was young man, not yet commissioned by God, was in a place where he saw a vision of a throne. Now it's particular to note in that great Isaiah 6 chapter, which by the way Elder Bradley touched on this morning. He mentions in that same text that the year King Uzziah died. And for all that you know about King Uzziah, uh, he was a great king. And he did that which was good in the sight of God. And he was a stabilizing force and influence among the people of Israel at that time. Even though that we may know him as that one king who was proud in a particular moment. In a particular moment, 
he let his guard down and he rushes into the temple and he did that which didn't pertain to him as a king. He was not a priest and as a result, he was stricken down with leprosy. But the fact is, Isaiah had a tremendous problem in his heart, a great burden with the northern enemies about to rain terror upon the children of Israel and now King Uzziah was dead. But it was in that terrible, distractive moment that God revealed himself and he did so by allowing Isaiah to see a throne and the Lord Jesus Christ, according to John chapter 12 and verse 41, is sitting on that throne. Now, other cases in the Old Testament reflect this beautiful imagery of a throne and how it is revealed in times of great distress. Like when Ezekiel was taken away in captivity along the river, and it wasn't a river of Jerusalem, or if you will, an Israeli river. The river Kabat is a river somewhere in Babylon. And it was in that pagan land when many were carried away by someone else's will into captivity, that Ezekiel, the, high, uh, the priest, was blessed to see a vision of a throne. And in another case, we can see Daniel, who himself was carried away into a pagan court to serve Nebuchadnezzar. It was there at that time that God revealed to him a vision of his sovereignty. And we can see further examples. Even Paul the Apostle, he was destitute, had no place to call his own. He said, I took pleasure in infirmities. He was full of necessities. He was without. And yet God called him up, if you will. In body or out of body, he didn't know. But he was speaking in the third person about himself. And he had a revelation of God Almighty. He was raptured into the very paradise of God. But it was during these times in which there was a tremendous low. Here's where you and I might think differently. We should be somewhere on top the paradise of human existence when God reveals himself to us. But no, we're in the dungeons. We're laid captive. We're prisoners. We're destitute. We're humiliated. We're the dust of the earth. We're rejected. We're scolded. We're no good. We're undone. You see how God works? As Brother Danny read from Psalms 138, how God is endureth forever. And in that trouble, he's thankful. In that trouble, God reveals himself to him. God is very high, but he comes and makes his home and dwells with the low and the humble. And so it is, John, who is companion in tribulation, has a great revelation of a throne. Now, what does that throne convey? It conveys the fact that God's sovereign. I mean, what better time for you to know that God is sovereign than on the riverside of the Kabab River when your people have been taken captive by Nebuchadnezzar, when the temple is destitute, when the children of Israel lay low, when there's nothing but weeping and sorrow and sadness, death and sickness. It's at that time that God is sovereign and he's in the heavens and he's sitting at the right hand of all majesty and he's ruling. You see, that's a blessing. That's a blessing to me that in spite of what happens in my life, God is on his throne. He's not to abrogate that throne. He's not to give it up, relinquish it. He remains steadfast. The Lord God reigneth and the people tremble. May it be that in our day of secularism that seems to be prevailing, that the ruler of all the earth remains steadfast and he is on his throne.
Now, there were times when, obviously, you might think uh, that God is not really concerned with the secular environment of the world. Now, he's concerned, obviously. I mean, all the things that happen in the Bible, you can see how God rules and reigns even among the sons of men. You remember a time when it was mentioned in the Bible that Tiberius Caesar was the emperor of Rome. And then there were others like Pilate, the governor of Judea, or like Herod, one of the descendants of great Herod, who was a tetrarch of Galilee, and others that were mentioned, like Philip, his brother, and Lysanias, who was a tetrarch of Abilene. These particular leaders were very prominent. They were secular, and God is still on his throne. But watch carefully. Then he moves from the secular, and he goes to the religious. You know, there's always religious elites among us. Don't ever forget it. Don't be dismayed at that. You know, mankind is religious by nature. And that's another, you know, they'll worship and serve the creature more than the creator. They're religious in nature. And so in listing those prominent secular figures, he lists two that were among the religious elite. Annas and Caiaphas. Caiaphas, of course, was the son-in-law of Annas. There was only one high priest. That was Caiaphas. But they went, first of all, if you remember in the judgment hall, they went first to Annas because he was the old uh, traditional religious elite. And uh, there you have two that reflect that. But what took place? What's interesting? Because from all appearances, it looks like God has abrogated his throne. Christ is bound by wicked hands and taken to the cross at Calvary and slain. It seems that God has disappeared. His own son vacated. How terrible a sight it was. But in those particular times, in those among the men that I've mentioned, we read this about the Word of God, the Word of God that we made mention earlier of, that it came to John, the son of Zacharias, in the wilderness. The Word of God was moving. We see the elites of the world. We see the happenings of what going, goings on. We see what's taking place in the world. We read the front page news, but in the little print on the back page, somewhere covered up, we see that the word of God came to his people while in the wilderness. Don't ever forget, God is a God that conceals the truth. It is to the glory of the king to conceal a matter, but it is to the honor, excuse me, it's to, to the glory of God to conceal a matter, but it is to the honor of kings to search it out. It is to your honor this morning that you search out the hidden wisdom of God and rejoice in what he has provided you in promises through Christ. He is the amen of God. He is the first and the last, the alpha and the omega. Behold, he said, I am alive forevermore. That one which was alive and that one which was dead is alive forevermore. He's revealing himself to us through the pages of Holy Writ. We see him high and lifted up. And we see him sitting down, satisfied upon his throne of sovereign rule. That's what I see here. But look, alongside this throne, there are colors, colors of heaven. As I said now, John is conveying truths by which we can understand. He said, and he that sat was to look upon like a jasper, like a jasper, and a sardine stone. And there was a rainbow around about the throne. Isn't that beautiful? The colors of the spectrum circling 
the throne of God upon which he sits. Jasper, if you look online at what might appear, it looks like a reddish and brownish stone. And so if we take the definitions of man, certainly we could derive that color. As a matter of fact, jasper belongs to the family of crystals. And so crystals, based on their content from various minerals it extracts from the soil, may have different colors. The red comes from the iron. Iron ore. Anybody ever go to Oregon Ridge? It was a great mine uh, where they mined iron ore. And, um, you know, Baltimore's got a lot of history when it comes to mining. You can go down Falls Road, you can see the names like copper. Because along Falls Road down there, uh, there used to be copper mines. And it's amazing what you got out of the earth. Well, these beautiful stones resemble here different colors. But primarily, the best way to define what that jasper may appear is found in the 21st chapter in verse 11 where it speaks of jasper as being a clear as crystal. And so this particular stone may be more like diamond. Now remember what I said about being dogmatic about your assertions when it comes to various things by which is presented in this vision and with the words like or as. And so without any dogmatic assertion, I believe this stone represents clear crystal, like a diamond. How beautiful it is. And then notice the sardine stone. Sardine. Now, Valentine's Day is coming up, Brother Michael. And for those who wish to buy their special favorite person in their life a Valentine's gift, you could go to Nima, Nima Marcus. And you can get a Sardinia necklace. It's worth about $24,800. $24, These stones are precious because they're valuable. They cost a lot. Now the sardine stone is blood red. And so we here have the jasper that is clear, is crystal, bright and shining. And then we have the sardine stone which is deep red in color, and how beautiful a picture it is when we think of red and what reminds us of the blood of our precious Savior, a blood shed by Emmanuel's veins that are more precious than gold or silver. Oh, how precious the blood of the Lord Jesus. And I want to say this, uh, when we mention those words like blood, we don't think of the violence that took place, but we think of the person who gave himself an offering for our sin. We think about this substitutionary death of the Lord Jesus Christ. We think of it in theological terms. Um, in, in our popular day of liberal theology, they're no longer using the word death of Christ. They're using the word killing of Jesus. They're, they're conveying something synonymous with the killing that goes on in the average inner city across America. And this is in... Uh, inappropriate and disrespectful uh, to the great sacrifice of our Lord Jesus. When you think about the blood of Christ, you think about the theological covenant. You think about the ramifications of, of what that blood provided and obtained, eternal redemption for us. You think about the conveying of the love of God in which we sang this morning. The love of God. Uh, you don't think about the violent nature of what takes place elsewhere. 
And so this wonderful stone conveys the beauty of the color red. But notice also, there was an emerald, a rainbow around about the throne in sight like unto an emerald. And an emerald, again, is another uh, gem that comes from the crystal family. In this case, green, beautiful green. Different shades of green, no doubt, but green nevertheless. And green in the Bible is a picture of life. It's a picture of the resurrection. Behold, I am he that what liveth forevermore. Jesus is green, is he not? He's resurrected from the dead. We're all green things. In the book of Revelation, when Satan is loosed out of the bottomless pit, the abyss, if you will, of demons, it's, it, is, it is told him that he is not to touch any green thing because God's people are preserved in Christ and nothing can take us out of the Father's hand. We are secure, eternally secure. And so no matter how devastating a judgment, a picture, a revelation may be, with all its gory details, God's people are protected and were saved from the wrath to come. But notice this rainbow. How beautiful a rainbow. Now, I know if you got your banner of love in last month's issue, you'll read about Hassel's uh, <clears throat> uh, take on the rainbow. And he, of course, takes it back to Genesis 9 and the Noahic uh, covenant, which is right. And... Um, But there's two things I want you to note about that rainbow, what it signifies. It was signifying two particular things, one to you and one to God. That which was signified as a token to you, this rainbow when we see it, reminds you that God will never again destroy the earth by the flood. Secondly, that rainbow reflects God in his remembrance of his everlasting covenant. But in each of those cases, it, to me, demonstrates the mercy and the truth of God. The mercy and the truth and grace of God. Because it reflects the everlasting covenant. There are the words that Moses uses in Genesis 9. The everlasting covenant. It's beyond a covenant made with Noah. That's a reflection of a greater covenant made from before the foundation of the world. A covenant we often call of grace. Because what we have in the first aspect of that token given to Noah, the rainbow, is the act of mercy in God withholding judgment. And the second one is a token of God's greatest gift and his wonderful provision that he is pleased through Christ to give to his people. How precious that is. But notice this rainbow, it's full circle. You know, when you and I see a rainbow, it's usually half of what God sees. God sees a full circle. He sees the whole thing complete. And when we all get to heaven, what a day of rejoicing that will be. Because we'll see the glorious colors of God Almighty complete. His work is finished. No more to be altered, changed, uprooted. Like we find and experience in this old time world. We see it completed in heaven. You want to see a picture of your theology? Look above. Look high. Now, I understand that if you're in an airplane and you fly over or near a rainbow, from above, you can see the full circle. It's beautiful. Now, in his article, Hassel talks about refraction. And he is so true. Because that's how the brightness 
of a bright white light is conveyed by refraction and then actually through a crystal, and it shows us a variety of different colors. Seven most important colors that we read about, ultraviolet all the way to infrared and everything in between. Seven beautiful colors. But, might I add, those colors add uh, much more than just seven. There's variations. There's hundreds and hundreds of variations. And so, uh, in that article, he points that out. Now, electrical engineers since then have uh, talked about incident light, which is light basically from natural light like the sun and also light from electricity. And these engineers get together and they talk about what that light does and how it's absorbed in materials like you and I and how it's reflected and also how it's refracted. In each one of those cases, you see the power of light. And might I add that that rainbow, there's a beautiful comment that David speaks on his deathbed about the shining rain and the morning and the light. He doesn't mention colors or the rainbow, but you can imagine what he's talking about when you see through the light after a morning rain when the drops of moisture still permeate the air and you can begin to see the beautiful shades of color. How beautiful it is when we reflect on the promises of God. John has seen a vision of heaven. It is impossible for him to convey what he sees. He can only surmise that it's as an emerald. It is as as jasper. It is as a sardine stone. How beautiful a gem it is. When you look at some of these gems, you can find that there's such a variety of colors. It is beautiful. These gems of which we speak are very popular in the Bible. In the Old Testament, when the high priest laid upon his garment or his priestly uh, um, garments of judgment upon that breastplate of judgment was an epod. And this epod, you remember, was a beautiful piece that was fashioned by very skilled technicians according to the design and the specifications by which God gave. And upon his epod, the names, the names of God's children were upon his heart in four rows of three. These stones which are mentioned, not only there, but also in the 21st chapter of the book of Revelation as being the foundation stones of the holy temple of God. These beautiful gems were upon the heart. They represent something. They're very powerful. These jewels, they represent something very powerful to God and to us today. And they were on this breastplate and it's a reflection that you and I who were jewels according to Zechariah 9 and verse 15 and 16 we're jewels we're referred to God's children are jewels in his sight we are upon his heart he loved us and gave himself for us a sacrifice for sin we are in heaven represented here by the, tor- by the 24 elders, no doubt. By the 24 elders, further on down in, that, uh, in, the, in the verse 4. But we're represented in another way. We're represented by these colors. 
Because if you look at the rainbow that surrounds the heaven, you look close. There's the light. God says, I'm light, right? God is light. John, he really dabbles in those kind of things, doesn't he? When he conveys God is. God is light, he says. God is love. He says, God is what? Spirit. They're beautiful, aren't they? But they convey certain attributes. But I think the chiefest of all attributes is found in that phrase, God is light. First John chapter 1 and verse 5, God is light. And in Him is no darkness at all. And that light is through His Son refracted. And we see many, many colors of the rainbow. Now you look close. And I want to share with you what is the inheritance of Christ. What is your inheritance? Some people think of great riches like gold and mansions in heaven. I'll finally have this indoor swimming pool I've always wanted. I remember uh, people asking Oprah Winfrey what heaven is like to her. She said it's like a big baked potato. Uh, Old George Burns. You remember old George? He played God in that movie. It's like having a big cigar Smoking a big sogi in heaven. No, my friends, the inheritance that we have in heaven are people like you and I. Look close. And in the colors of that rainbow, you see faces out of every kindred and tribe and tongue and people. That rainbow represents the glorious elect of the children of God. Now, I want you to make note, as I said before, that what is mentioned in the book of Revelation, we find mimicked. There's parity going on among the demons and among Satan. And always remember that. Satan will rob the choice words of this book and convey various false images and erroneous images to it. But this rainbow in my book is a picture of God's people surrounding the throne. And through that light we see Christ. Now look at this. We're going to continue on because I want to get to the... Where I really wanted to get to down there in verse uh, 6. Because there's a sea of crystal. But not before mentioning the uh, four and twenty seats. Upon seats I saw four and twenty elders. Now simply said, these are two groups of twelve. You know, twelve in, in the book of Revelation is a very important number. It's conveyed many, many different ways. Uh, it can be divided up. It can be... It can be um, a squared, it can be, and, and it conveys, you'll see it in different manners throughout the book of Revelation. And it's, uh, it pictures, of course, the church of God. Um, not only is 12, well, I don't want to get into numbers here, but let me just convey this. You have two, two groups of 12, and of course the 12 patriarchs of the Old Testament and the 12 apostles of the New look to heaven in one sense as one complete church were represented by the patriarchs and by the apostles. And in the 21st chapter of the book of Revelation, which I won't go to, it numbers and lists them, the sons of Jacob and the 12 apostles. And among the 12 apostles, of course, the the 12 patriarchs were likened to the gates, but the apostles were likened to the foundation. And, of course, we read about how the apostles are the foundation, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. But we find that in the New Testament over there, uh, we see that all the stones that were mentioned in the Old Testament are mentioned in the New over there in Revelation as the foundation that builds up the holy city. And 
Remember what I said about you being a jewel in the eyes of God. That what you see in these gems are the people of God. Because over there also, in the book of Revelation, you can read more as it unveils itself. Always use the Bible to define the Bible. Speaking of the holy city, the people of God, the mother of us all, spiritual Jerusalem. Notice what it says. The church of the living God, having the glory of God and her light in the feminine, speaking of the church of God, having her light, was like unto a stone, most precious, even like a jasper stone, clear as crystal. I'll tell you, if you've got a problem with identity this morning, you're looking in the mirror and you're getting old, you're sick and you're afflicted, you got problems, you don't know how, ever, you can get past them. You need to look in heaven. You need to look upwards to see who you truly are. It's amazing to me how man tries to capture man's identity. And for what? What is its end? What's the glory of man but death? He highlights that. I mean, if he was really concerned about life everlasting, and I've mentioned this before, I think you couldn't find a seat in this house this morning. But man is often captivated by death. And he's pursuing a course. He's unknown. It's unknown to him. There's no light. There's no revelation. He's living out the way he wants. He's represented by the words of C.S. Lewis. All right. Have it your way. But we are represented by those who, by God's sovereign grace, can say, Lord, not my will be done, but thy will be done. God has cleansed us as clear as crystal through the righteous shed blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. We stand justified in him this morning. But as we move on further, we're going to pass the fifth verse that refers to the seven spirits of God, Isaiah chapter 11. We've mentioned those in previous occasions. And we're going to key you on in our conclusion this morning with a sea of crystal. A sea of crystal. And how beautiful <laughs> this sea of crystal is. I really deserve to comment on the sea of crystal for about an hour or more. But I think most of you are looking more forward to that cup of coffee and donuts I have for you downstairs that uh, uh, you can have after we close. But... The sea of crystal is a beautiful thing. And when we can imagine the sea throughout the scriptures and also history, that it's a very daunting thing. And with my one experience being out on sea, I don't want to repeat uh, the horror that I felt one night when a friend of mine invited me to get in this little old wooden mahogany uh, sailboat without any other power than the sail and spend a couple nights in the Chesapeake, literally, almost in the Chesapeake. And it was raining, it was night, it was dark, and here we're trying to maneuver. Uh, it's not a good, good thing to do. I've done a lot of things when I was young that really were just plain old stupid. That was one of them. But I survived by the grace of God. Uh, the sea is very treacherous. It's unknown. It's deep. Those who touted the, the Titanic as being invincible uh, found out what horror the sea is. Uh, we don't know the depths of the sea. And yet, amazingly, what we find in the book of Psalms, chapter 24, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, and them that dwell therein. 
And then he says it was founded upon the seas and it was established upon the the floods. So with God, the sea is not daunting, it's not scary. But to us it is. I don't see any great John Paul Jones in the book of the Old Testament. I read about people like Jonah. Of course, I do have a different take on Peter the Apostle and the other fishermen of the Sea of Galilee because that was a tremendous, ferocious sea. Some of you, my friends, are overwhelmed by this sea. You're fearful of the sea. But God, He's controlling. He's sovereign over it. Because that verse in Psalms 24 goes on to say, if I could take the... Oh, no, I'm in 139 now. He says, if I could take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there, the psalmist said, thy hand leadeth me. Isn't that a beautiful thought? There's no place, even among the depths of the unfathomable sea, that God is not. I'm telling you, there's a, there's a proof text right there. He says, whither shall I go from thy spirit? There's a proof text right there that God's spirit is already there. You can send the missionaries and you can educate. You can send the Bible and teach. But the Bible says the spirit is already there. He's everywhere. Now, if you want to visualize that a little bit better, you take the spirit in the way in which the original language it conveys it. And that is the wind. Wherever there is wind, there is God. God is wind. God is spirit. He's everywhere. And by the way, that phrase, John is spirit, in John chapter 4, it's read, John, it reads this way. God is a spirit. But the little article A is not in the original. It should read, God is spirit. That's truthful to the original language. Now, and we, 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 we present that because it's truthful to what we're saying here this morning, that God is spirit. He is wind. And there's no place where he's absent. He's everywhere present and nowhere absent. All right, this sea of glass. In the 15th chapter of the book of Revelation, we're standing upon it. This sea of glass, which is tormenting us all our lifetime. That sea which harbors The demons, it's the abyss in the book of Revelation. You remember when the Lord cast out the demons and they they asked the Lord, don't send us into the water where they came from. The sea is going to give up the dead, by the way, in Revelation 20. Well, he didn't send them into the water, did he? But he sent them into the swine and then they ran down the hill into the water and drowned. I'll tell you what, the sea is a picture of Satan and his demons. It's a pea, excuse me, it's a sea of darkness. It's a picture of the unknown. But in terms of heaven and immortal glory, it's beneath our feet. In chapter 15 and verse 2, this sea of glass is beneath our feet. And remember what I said about losing your identity in Adam. Yes, they try to capture that identity. But we've lost our true identity in Adam. And that's why Isaac Watts, in that great hymn, he cries out, And he says, that which is Adam effaces, you restore your image in my face. We bear the image of God. We bear his image. We bear his mark. 
And we can tell when we look at that sea of glass and we look down and we see the reflection of our true identity. And what is it and who is it that we see? Everything in this fourth chapter, whether it's the four living beasts, these creatures that surround the throne, the rainbow, or those that represent the church of the Old and the New Testament, all of it reflects the wonderful purpose and provision that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. It is Christ that we see. We are being conformed right now, though we see through a glass darkly, we are being conformed to the very image of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so when we get to heaven, what a day that will be, when we see in ourselves the picture of the the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God Himself, we see righteousness, we see holiness, we see purity, we see things that only God has given to us of Himself. We see Christ Himself. We see through a glass darkly, but we shall see face to face. Now, this beautiful imagery is captured again from an Old Testament picture of the laver. And this was amazing when I was studying the Revelation 4th chapter, that the translators led me that way. Because if you look in your center column reference, the reference in verse 6 about the sea of glass, like unto crystal which is in the midst of the throne, around about the throne, their four beasts were, were full of eyes before and behind. That reference goes back to Exodus chapter 38 and verse 8. What in the world? So I looked at 38 verse 8, and it pictures the laver. Well, what was the laver? Well, it was just a, there was no dimensions given. In the days of Solomon, it was a humongous thing. But there was no dimensions given originally when Moses received the directions on building the furniture that housed in the tabernacle. And this laver, what it was used for was the priest. And the priest would wash their feet and wash their hands before they would go into the service, the holy service of God. But what's interesting in that note is that the laver was made of brass, but not just any old brass. It was made from, there were women that were devoted to serving God and they would park themselves in a chorus of song and praise and adoration. I appreciate so much what what Danny had, he continues to remind us to celebrate God and to praise God and be thankful for God's delivering us. And they were as well, they were praising God. Well, these dear women devoted in the, construction of the laver, their shining brass looking glasses. Now, they didn't have glass in those days. They would take bronze or they would take brass and they would shine it up real shiny and they could see the reflection of themselves. And this is what I believe. That that laver was made with the shiny brass looking glasses of the dear devoted women and that brass was so shiny that when the priests went to wash their hands and feet, they saw themselves. They saw as a reminder who they were by nature, that they weren't among the elite among men, that they were mere servants of the thrice holy God in whom they went to worship, you see. And when we come to the house of God, we are nothing special. And I appreciate the prayer by Brother Bray this morning when he said, Lord, bless the message, bless the message. Don't worry about the messenger. He can get any Tom, Dick, or Harry. The message needs to be blessed. 
The message of the gospel needs to be blessed and come through the power and demonstration of the Holy Spirit. Who cares? Take an ordinary fellow, but put in him the Spirit, the Almighty God, that he might preach the unsearchable riches, not of himself, but of the Lord Jesus Christ. Glorify him, not the man. We are merely tokens of the humanity, the default, the disgust, the disappointed humanity that bears the image of Adam. Let me bear the image of Christ. See in me, not myself, but see the Lord Jesus Christ. Look down upon the crystal of glass. See Christ and Him crucified. And when you bow at your, at your brother's feet during the feet washing service, you remember the ladder. You remember that ladder. You remember He's but human, that His feet are made of clay. That outside of Christ, He's nothing. We are in all things made complete in Christ. There's no hope beyond him. He's the life and life everlasting. May the Lord bless you. We're glad you've been able to listen to this special podcast. We invite you to come and worship with us on a Sunday morning. Our services begin with hymn singing at 10.30 a.m. Mount Carmel Primitive Baptist Church is located at 1707 Churchville Road in Bel Air, Maryland. If you've enjoyed this message, we invite you to subscribe to our podcast in iTunes or in your favorite podcast application. Now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ go with you.